In the realm of law, I take my stand. Crimes against humanity, penalty I demand. Three letters strong, justice I decree. Brought against people, not a country. What am I? And that was this week's E-International Relations Riddle. Stay tuned to the end of this episode for the answer. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Thinking Global podcast by E-International Relations. My name is Kieran O'Meara and as ever I am your host and this week I am joined by my co-host Edward Curry. Hi Ed, great to have you with us today. Hey Kieran, always a pleasure to be resuming our audio escapades. <laughs> it is indeed and that by the way is going to be the title of our first album. <laughs> Resuming Audio Escapades. <laughs> I love that. This week, Edward and I interviewed Professor Joseph S. Nye Jr., which was such an unbelievable honour to be able to interview such a massive figure of international relations. And we think this was an absolutely fantastic episode, if we do say so ourselves. So stay tuned for that. Beforehand, if you haven't already done so, go and check out the website at e-ir.info. There you'll be able to find just loads of content about international relations, free books, loads of features, interviews, book reviews, just loads. So go and check that out. There's a link in the description box. And also, click on that little subscribe or follow button please 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 <laughs> that way you'll be able to get all of the content thinking global has to offer the moment it's uploaded so go on treat yourself click on that little follow or subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening to this on right now okay professor joseph s nye jr is distinguished service professor emeritus and former dean of the Harvard University Kennedy School of Government. He has served as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, Chair of the National Intelligence Council, and Deputy Undersecretary of State for Security Assistance, Science and Technology in the United States. His books include, but by no means limited to, Power and Interdependence, co-written with Robert O'Kayahan, Soft Power, The Means to Success in World Politics, The Powers to Lead, The Future of Power, Presidential Leadership and the Creation of the American Era, Is the American Century Over, Do Morals Matter, Presidents and Foreign Policy from FDR to Trump, and Soft Power and Great Power Competition. He is a Fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the British Academy, and the American Academy of Diplomacy. In a recent survey of international relations scholars, he was ranked as the most influential scholar on American foreign policy. And in 2011, foreign policy named him one of the top 100 global thinkers. Today, you're going to hear him talk with us about his latest book, A Life in the American Century, published by Polity Press, of which there is a link to in the description box. Okay, Ed, 
Let's roll. Hello, Professor Nye. Thank you ever so much for joining us today. It's an absolute honor and such a pleasure to have you with us. It's a pleasure to join you. Okay, so at the beginning of a life in the American century, which, if I may say so, cuts back and forth between personal, professional, and intellectual autobiography seamlessly, you recall how you could not have imagined being at the forefront of the U.S. foreign policy discourse for the latter part of the century when you were younger. You also speak about the importance of storytelling as a, quote, way for humans to create meaning in their individual and collective lives, end quote. So, I would like to ask for our first question, if U.S. foreign policy in the latter quarter of the 20th century were a story, what would be its themes and what kind of meaning would you find in it? Well, uh, let's go to a little bit more than the last quarter uh, and think about the last uh, 35 or 40 years. I think I would start the story with um, the Eisenhower years and the feeling of Cold War uh, insecurity in terms of relations with the, uh, with the Soviets. Uh, and then uh, when we enter the 60s, we enter a very strange decade in which uh, we suffer from uh, overambition in, in Vietnam. And um, our reputation internationally, as well as our success uh, in the war in Vietnam, uh, if, you, if you want, pride goeth before a fall. Uh, then there's a recovery in the 80s um, and by the 90s the Soviet Union has vanished uh, but then pride goeth before a fall again as we get involved in the Iraq war. So I would describe it as a story of cycles of inward and outward turning uh, orientations toward the rest of the world and uh, of mistakes that are made from thinking either that we can turn inward very much or that we can control things when we turn outward. So um, it's, a, it's a complex story, but that usually makes better stories. A key concept that is often associated with you is soft power. For our listeners who are unaware or those who may not know, what is soft power and why is it so significant to U.S. foreign policy going forward? Well, I, soft power is the ability to get what you want through attraction rather than coercion or payment. I developed the term in 1989-90 when um, uh, there was a belief that the United States was in decline. Uh, the great British historian Paul Kennedy had written a book called The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, which was a bestseller basically arguing that the U.S. was going the way of Philip II Spain or Edwardian Britain. Um, I thought this was wrong, and as I tried to explain why I thought it was wrong, I looked at American military power, and then I looked at American economic power, uh, and then I said, but there's still something missing, which is the ability of the Americans to attract others. Uh, to get what they want without military or economic coercion. 
And that's when I developed this concept of, of soft power. Um, now, it, it's also worth noting that um, very many people have picked up the concept, um, including Hu Jintao, the Chinese uh, president in 2007, where he told the 17th Party Congress that uh, China had to do more to enhance its soft power. So a concept that I uh, originally developed for analytical purposes has become very much used politically. And when something becomes used politically, you can no longer discipline it. I've, I say in the book that uh, your, your concepts are like children. You can control them when they're young, but as they grow up, uh, they take on a mind of their own. So very often people now use the term soft power as though it's uh, anything that's not military power. Or, um, I, I think that's incorrect. What it really refers to is the ability to get what you want through attraction rather than uh, coercion or payment. And it's also, um, while it's a different form of power from hard power, um, it also um, complements them. In other words, it's not, in many instances, it's not whether you have soft or hard power, but if you have soft power in addition to hard power, then you have to spend less on uh, sticks and carrots. So that's, that's my intention of what I meant when I developed the term. But as I said, uh, not everybody obeys my rules. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So this next question is one that I simply cannot waste the opportunity to ask with my own background in theory. So you wrote a fantastic book with Robert Cahane that has become a staple of IR theory, and that's power and interdependence. What I would like to ask is if you still think the philosophy of science that underpins this book, its basis in positivism alone, remains convincing. Well, I, I have to plead guilty to being a positivist, um, but no one is completely free of some ideological or value leanings. Um, the book that uh, Cohen and I wrote, Power and Interdependence, has uh, been identified as starting a new school of uh, international relations theory, which has been dubbed uh, neoliberalism. Uh, both Bob and I think that's oversimplified what we are after. But um, where it has a, a, a core of truth is that the traditional liberal view of international relations um, is that um, uh, more trade uh, produced more peace. And uh, that both of us felt was overly simplified. And uh, so in the book, what we try to do is say that realism, which is basically geopolitics and balance of power politics, uh, is not wrong, it's insufficient. And so we said, if you're going to analyze an international situation, uh, start with the realist propositions uh, but don't stop where you start. You have to go and add additional factors relating to trade and interdependence. And there what you find is that 
um, what matters is the symmetry or asymmetry of interdependence as to whether it generates power. And uh, so in a sense, our uh, book uh, is, is, if you want, an adaptation or an extension of the uh, classical uh, realist approach to international politics. And in some cases, it's a, uh, a, a, a rep, uh, a, an expansion, but um, partial refutation of classical liberalism. Uh, so in that, in that way, the, the term neoliberalism may make some sense, but um, uh, it, it's not true if you think of when you uh, approach questions of uh, uh, democracy and international relations or uh, the, uh, the question of, of the importance of norms. Uh, on those issues, I've written elsewhere. Um, I wrote a book in uh, 2020 called Do Morals Matter? Arguing that, um, um, yes, these liberal ideas do matter. They do uh, tend to motivate people and they can help to explain a number of things. So in that uh, larger sense, I am a uh, child of the Enlightenment. Uh, I am indeed uh, in that liberal tradition and affected by that that op that ideology, which tends to be somewhat optimistic. But in the Power and Interdependence book, we were essentially pressing against that liberal background to say that it's not enough, that um, you have to be able to... The complaint with the realists was that they stopped where they started. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, so... There are a number of chapters in your most recent book that are simply a delight to read. From the chapter detailing your early years, of which I must tell listeners there is a great picture of you as an exceptionally smartly dressed four-year-old, <laughs> to your thoughts on the Trump and Biden administrations. Actually, one of my favourite chapters concerns your time and numerous travels during the Clinton years at the Pentagon and your work on US foreign policy in East Asia. So to what extent would you say US foreign policy norms concerning East Asia have adapted since you were at the Pentagon? Well, I, I should first say that the uh, uh, credit or fault for my uh, uh, smart picture, in fact, wearing a necktie and four years old, goes uh, to uh, my mother <laughs> at that stage. I, I had little choice. Um, but to, to go more seriously to your, your question about uh, East Asia, uh, the, um, it's interesting that um, in the uh, early 90s, uh, there was a, a general view, uh, it's hard to believe today, that Japan was the major threat. Books were published called The Coming War with Japan. Uh, the view was that Japan was eating our lunch economically. Um, there, and the first year of the Clinton administration, uh, I would go to meetings at the White House in which the various um, agencies would be uh, competing for who could be tougher with Japan. Uh, my feeling was that 
if you looked at East Asia, what you were going to see was uh, three major countries, Japan, China, Japan, and the U.S. And in those terms, uh, uh, thinking of the basic uh, premises of balance of power theory, it's better to be part of the two than the one. And um, so at that stage, there was a belief both in Tokyo and in uh, Washington that the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty was a relic of the Cold War and uh, could be discarded. Uh, I argued that no, the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty um, could become a uh, framework for stability and for economic growth in East Asia. And uh, the Japanese called that the, um, eventually the Japanese, me the order the rising sun for the efforts to do this but the important thing in terms of washington's policy was that it it got back to a, a situation where we thought of balancing uh japan china and as a framework for stability in east asia so if i ask what's changed and what's not that basic framework is still there. The U.S.-Japan alliance is stronger today than in the past. And um, what has changed, though, was the other half of that uh, policy, which was the view that uh, by engaging China, we could help China orient itself more toward uh, the international system and um, perhaps foster the growth of pluralism, if not democracy, inside of China. Uh, that led to the Americans supporting China's entry into the World Trade Organization, accepting large amounts of Chinese imports. Uh, and it, there was a period in the 2010s where it looked uh, like China was moving in the directions that we hoped. Um, but basically, that was not to be. I mean, the, uh, China, when Xi Jinping came to power in 2012, uh, China turned toward tighter parts, uh, these uh, uh, first signs of pluralism. And um, there has been a what's called a revival of great power competition as the framework for the uh, relationship rather than this idea of engagement. So the original thoughts in the Clinton period is get the balance of power right in terms of uh, reaffirming the alliance with Japan and then try to engage China uh, to see whether China will uh, be a significant creative part of the liberal international order. I'd say the first part of that uh, uh, plan worked, and the second part of it uh, probably did not work. Welcome to the intermission of this week's episode of the Thinking Global podcast. Now, it is absolutely one of my favorite moments of the week where I get to read out your letters to us. Please, please keep sending your letters to us. We want to hear from you. We want to hear 
which international relations articles you've enjoyed reading, which Thinking Global podcast episodes you liked, and which of our free open access books you found interesting. Keep emailing us at thinkingglobal.eir at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. Absolutely love it. So please send us your letters. Okay, so we've got two this week. One from Jawad Khan, who says, Hi, Kieran, I enjoyed the theories that are published on international relations. I would love to read about research methodology in IR as well. Well, Jawad, we can do something about that. We can have a chat and maybe even do a podcast episode about methodology in IR. You're not the first person to mention that as an interest, so we will definitely look into that. Thank you very much for writing in. And secondly, from Foldy Adrienne, who says, I highly recommend my colleague's article for all readers. And that is the drivers of hydrogen's waves of hype between security and the environment by John Zabo. Yeah, that was a fantastic article. So definitely go away and have a read of that. Absolutely fantastic work. Now, this week, what we would absolutely love you to do is to send us an email to thinkingglobal.eir at gmail.com with what you would like to have more episodes about on the Thinking Global podcast. Are there any particular areas of international relations that you don't think we've covered enough that you would like more guests to explore? Just send us a little letter saying, Hi, this is what I'd like to hear more of. Please, please send us your letters so we can make a better podcast for you, our listeners. So please, please send us your letters about what you've enjoyed reading, which podcast episodes you've liked, and which books you found really interesting. And also shoot us a message to tell us what you'd like to hear more about. Now, before we get back to the interview with Professor Nye, if you enjoy the content and output of e-international relations, please do consider donating. E-international relations is in fact a non-profit organization, and all of those who work at e-international relations do so as volunteers. So please, if you enjoy the content and output of e-international relations, consider a donation. There is a link in the description box. Oh, and also don't forget to click on that little follow or subscribe button so you can get all the content Thinking Global has to offer the moment that it gets uploaded straight to your device. So go on, click on that little button. <laughs> okay, let's go back to Professor Nye. Simply put, has the historical period of U.S. dominance come to an end? Is the American century well and truly over? Well, it's a, it's a complex answer that I have to give about whether the American century is over. I wrote a book with that title in 2015, and I concluded in there, and I think I'd stick with the conclusions, that it's not over, but it's going to be very different. If you look back at uh, the term, the American century, 
which is a term coined by Henry Luce in 1941, uh, he coined it basically to uh, push back against American isolationism. Um, this was before World War II. Franklin Roosevelt was trying to uh, encourage Americans to take more seriously what was happening overseas, but without much luck. And Luce's term, the American century, was trying to persuade Americans to look outward more. Um, the United States ends World War II with um, basically control of about half of the world's economy and the only nuclear weapons. Um, that obviously erodes with time, and the Soviets break the nuclear monopoly four years later in 1949. Um, the American share of world product from 50% back to 25% uh, takes until um, uh, 1970. Uh, but what's interesting about that 25% number is that was the share of American product before World War II, and it's close to the share of American product today. Uh, so that doesn't, that indicates relative decline compared to uh, 1945. It doesn't represent absolute decline in the sense of the collapse of the underlying categories of American power resources. Um, I think that means that we're, we're going to see is uh, an American uh, century continuing in the sense that the Americans will be the strongest um, uh, power, but uh, they'll have less capability to uh, control things. Indeed, as you've had diffusion of power with the growth of new states, uh, the danger is uh, entropy, the inability to get anything done. And um, I think the, the question of, uh, the, if you think of the American century as the period that uh, Luce described and that indeed occurred or started in 1945 after World War II, um, then uh, that century is over. But if you mean, uh, is China about to pass the United States as the dominant power uh, of the current period? Uh, I think not, and I, I, I give various reasons in the book as to why I think that's uh, uh, the case. But um, so it's a complex answer to the question, which is, uh, yes and no. <laughs> uh, yes, it's not going to be the same degree of relative power as occurred earlier. Uh, no, it's not over in the sense that the Americans are likely to remain the preeminent power for uh, some period into the future. Hmm, thank you. So what I'd like to ask next is more topical and current. Given the number of challenges facing international order currently, from the invasion of Ukraine to the current regional situation in the Middle East, which seems to be evolving with every passing day in front of our eyes, how would you advise the US government to respond to these challenges? Well, I think the, uh, the Gaza war has uh, been devastating, of course, 
initially, uh, or most importantly, for Palestinians, but also for Israelis. And by extension, it's uh, been damaging to American soft power. Um, I think the Biden administration has been trying to uh, reconcile uh, strong support for the state of Israel uh, with uh, uh, not supporting everything that the Netanyahu government is doing. Um, in that sense, uh, I think that uh, there was movement uh, before the October 7th uh, atrocities uh, toward increasing prospect that Saudi Arabia uh, would um, recognize Israel. The Saudis have made it clear that uh, they would not do this without uh, some form of a Palestinian state. And Biden has been continuing to press that. Um, when Secretary of State Tony Blinken went to uh, uh, the region uh, last week or two, um, he pressed uh, the idea that we needed Israel not only to moderate the way it was conducting the war against Hamas, but also to give a picture of a more positive future that could attract um, rather than repel Palestinians. Uh, in other words, add some soft power to the equation, which is dominated by hard power now. Um, I don't see the Netanyahu government with its strong uh, right-wing settler component being able to accept that picture. So I don't think this is likely to occur anytime soon, but I think having a, a larger, more positive picture of a future is going to be important. And uh, it may take some time for this to work out. This is a question we ask everybody that comes to the podcast. What is it to think globally for you? Well, I, I think globally to me means realizing that the degrees of interconnection and interdependence among the various parts of the world are much greater than they've ever been and uh, that they rest not just on doctrines, they rest on technological change. I mean, if you think of uh, the, I, 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 I use the example in the book of before COVID, um, I had oh, more than a million miles on more than one airline and uh, communicating internationally uh, was very much uh, something that occurred uh, through the marvels of air travel. In 2020, I stopped traveling, but it's interesting, it didn't stop me from uh, having uh, making speeches on uh, several continents in the same week without sp spilling a drop of jet fuel. Um, that's an extraordinary example of globalization. There are many, many others, of course. But I guess what I'm, to me, globalization means uh, realizing that we're getting more tightly connected for better and for worse. But uh, nonetheless, it's there. I, I think in that sense, uh, globalization means taking into account the broader aspects of national uh, actions. 
uh, and thinking about the implications for the rest of the globe. Uh, the, the clearest and most dramatic example of this is uh, global climate change. And one of the problems there is that politicians are in democracies are elected every few years and uh, the impacts of climate change often take decades to show up. Uh, that makes it very difficult to get public awareness um, of the global effects um, and that goes to this basic dilemma about uh, uh, national and global. Uh, we're going to have to think uh, more globally and climate change I think is the classic example of that. Thank you so much for your answer to that question, Professor Nye. We get a different answer to that question every single week, so it's great that you've continued that tradition. <laughs> but I'm afraid that's all we have time for today, so thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute joy and a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to meet with us and do this interview. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I've enjoyed this. And we've so enjoyed having you. Thank you, Professor Nye. Wow. What a guest. What a guest. Ed, thoughts, immediate thoughts hit me. I think Professor Nye sees the expansion of liberal ideas as a net positive for America navigating the precariousness of the 21st century. And I think that his take on the Gaza war is especially uh, prudent in this manner. Nevertheless, Nye is quick to admit the downsides of American soft power going into the Gaza war and the struggles the region faces this century. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I completely agree with that. And I think his general attitude towards US foreign policy analysis it's just really fascinating for all policy analysts, really the way in which not only methodologically or even theoretically, but the way in which you can see how he tackles a particular phenomenon is just incredibly interesting to explore with him. But no, thank you, thank you. Okay, so before we get to the answer for this week's riddle, I just want to remind listeners to go over to e-international relations at e-ir.info. There you'll be able to find the world's leading open access website for students and scholars of international relations. There's loads of stuff there from tons of articles on a variety of topics on international relations updated daily. There are loads of free books, I know, free books, book reviews, interviews, and so, so much more. So go check it out. There's a link in the description box. Alongside that, don't forget, as I said in the intermission, to send us your letters to thinkingglobal.eir at gmail.com. We really, really want to hear from you and what sort of stuff you want on the podcast in future. I'd also like to say a massive, massive thank you to the E-International Relations podcast team. But before that, I'd like to say a massive thank you to Anne Sullivan at Polity Press. Anne, you absolutely rock. This episode would not have happened without your assistance and coordination. Thank you so, so much. 
I'd also like to say a massive thank you, obviously, to the E-International Relations podcast team. You guys are phenomenally amazing. I don't even have the words to describe. <laughs> That's a massive thank you to Catherine Dameron, to Sharika Decker, Jennifer Engel, Nigel Huckle, Daniel McDade, Eduardo Pieroni, and Romanos Orpheus Toffis. A massive thank you goes out also to Material Music, who did the music. And I could not have done this without my co-host, Edward Curry. Ed, mate, you're a star. Thank you so, so much for everything you do. Okay, let's go to that riddle. In the realm of law, I take my stand. Crimes against humanity, penalty I demand. Three letters strong, justice I decree. Brought against people, not a country. What am I? And the answer was... The International Criminal Court, the ICC. Well done if you got it right. Congratulations. And a big congratulations go to the first correct person who got this right on social media, and that was Rubiat Simon. Well done, Rubiat. Rubiat is a lecturer at the Department of Maritime Security and Strategic Studies at BSMRMU. His research interests include regionalism, development, maritime security, international political economy, foreign policy, diplomacy, and South Asian affairs and in 2020 published on the prospect of the Belt and Road Initiative in the context of Bangladesh. So yeah, well done, Rubia. You got it spot on in less than five minutes. So congratulations. <laughs> okay, well, that's everything for today. I can't think of anything left to say apart from don't forget to click on that little like, subscribe or follow button. Please, please, that we'll be able to get all the content Thinking Global has to offer straight to your device as it's uploaded. And I guess there's nothing left to say apart from, I've been Kieran O'Meara. I'm Edward Curry. And together we've been Thinking Global. Global.